I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connection through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurangai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Whenua of Tafanganui Atara, where I'm recording today. Uh, firstly, we'd like to preface this episode with a content warning. These chapters deal with a character being urged to suicide. If this brings up anything for you, please reach out to, for help. You can call Lifeline Australia at 13 11 14 or Lifeline New Zealand at 0800 Lifeline or look to the show notes for more resources. Please stay safe and please take care of yourself. Cool. So this week we're reading chapters 11 to 12 through the theme of transformation. Um, really intense chapters here for us but I thought you know can you tell us a story about when you had transformation oh baby can I (laughs) okay so this is like the biggest transformation of my adult life aside from being a parent um but it's got there might be like a squick factor because I'm talking about getting surgery on my eyes ew eye chat (laughs) uh I first got glasses in the fifth grade like at the time it felt like oh great my body has already begun to fail me starting in childhood um, and the thing is, with when you get glasses when you're young, you kind of know your vision's going to get worse. And so I just assumed that someday I would be blind. Like, it would get so bad that I would be blind. So this just mm-hmm. became part of my, like, background anxiety. Um, I hated not being able to see. I hated having to rely on glasses. I wanted it fixed. I'd been considering LASIK for a really long time, but something always put me off. The cost was really prohibitive, or, like, I was pregnant or breastfeeding, or both, which can mm-hmm. cause fluctuations in vision. And then there were the horror stories. When I did get a consultation, it was because I fell down while holding my youngest in my arms. Mm. Um, I managed to save him from being injured, but I was really badly bruised, and I scratched up my glasses. I could still get home, but, like, the prospect of being stuck with two kids under five and having to wait for help, it scared me a lot more than the prospect of, like, potential double vision. Mm -hmm. So I made an appointment that week. Um, After a lengthy exam, the surgeon explained that I was a great candidate for smile surgery. The procedure takes 20 minutes. What they do is they, like, zap your eyes with a laser. They shape the cornea to correct your vision. And then they make, like, a teeny tiny incision in the side. And then they, like, pull out the superfluous sclera. That's what it's called. And then it, like, changes the lens. So then you have Mm. the right amount of thickness to actually change your vision. But it's the least invasive. Uh, The risk of total blindness is like near zero. And the worst thing most people experience is dry eyes and some dazzling where everything looks Mm -hmm. really starry. Um, I've never minded being starry-eyed and everything else seemed really straightforward. So I made the appointment. As nervous as I was, the closer the day of the surgery got, the more excited I was. I was like, I am ready to transform myself into a person who no longer needed glasses to see. So the surgery went exactly as described, but there was an aspect to it that I hadn't really allowed for. I was, for all intents and purposes, allowing myself to become blind temporarily. So this is like Mm. my biggest fear, not because being blind is terrible in and of itself, but because it meant that I would have to relearn a bunch of stuff and all of the things that I do that are really visually coded, like sewing and and writing and reading, they're really Mm. vision heavy. So, Mm. So here I am, you know, stuck in this chair, a little bit loopy I did become blind briefly 
you see the laser and the laser is a light and then it just becomes like this golden mottle of color. There's nothing clear. There's no definition. It's just amorphous. I mean, it was maybe for five minutes, but I was totally blind. I had to let myself be vulnerable. I had to sit in it. So basically, it was the worst five minutes of my life, probably. Uh, finally, I sent some movement around my eyes. The tiny tools were in there clearing away the excess sclera. And then I could see again. It yeah. was hazy and starry. But behind that haze, the edges were clear, um, <laughs> which is just so exciting. I was short-sighted, and then I was blind, and then I could see better than I have ever seen in my adult life. So I had been transformed in less than half an hour, and also it took a lot of money. <laughs> um, I think what I want to take away from this is that even intentional transformations are uncomfortable, um, mm. and sometimes what motivates a transformation, it might be fear, it might be hope, it might be fear and hope in equal measure. Um, sometimes it's an accident. I don't know if I would have actually gone through with the surgery if I hadn't like finally felt desperate enough to take that risk. Mm. Um, and I might not have done it at all if we couldn't afford it. I mean, it took six months for us to save up for it even. So it's not yeah. a cheap surgery. Yeah, um, it's not. <laughs> coming out the other side of it, though, my vision is restored to factory default. And I really like being able to wake up and see. <laughs> oh, it's so lovely. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my story of transforming. It's not like... I just, like, all of my other stories seem really sad sack, but I thought this one's actually pretty good. I really enjoyed having laser eye surgery. And now I'm an evangelist, and I will tell everyone, if you can get it, you should get it, because it's amazing. Yeah, I've got a couple of friends who just swear by it, who's like, you know, my one friend is a photographer, and for years he really struggled with glasses and trying to take photos mm. and stuff, and he got it done a couple of years ago, and it's just, like, changed his life. It does. My only thing is now I have to wear, well, now I choose to wear reading glasses, because if I do any of the stuff I used to do all the time with no trouble, I get eye strain because I'm slightly uh. long-sighted. <laughs> so I, I still get to wear cute glasses, which is nice, but they're not a prerequisite. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that's a lovely story. Thank you for sharing. Oh, thank you for letting me talk about it. Sorry I talked about the eye stuff. Yeah, eye stuff is one of my big things where I'm like, in movies or anything, if someone goes for the eyes, I'm like, nope, 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 right away. I just hate anything to do with the eyes. It's one of the reasons I don't think I would ever get laser eye surgery, because it literally terrifies me. But, you know. It is very scary, but also it's really quick. Yeah, it's only like, yeah, like you said, 20 minutes, right? But... Yeah, it felt like five because of the Valium. <laughs> I can still see. Even without my glasses on. So maybe when it gets worse, I'll be like, okay, I've changed my mind. My vision was officially like impaired. Um, it was like negative five, five on one side, negative six, seven, five on the other. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it's nice to have a reset. It's nice that the option is there. Yeah. I wish it were something that everyone could get. It's so much cheaper in the long run than glasses. Hmm. It's a lot of things, right? It's like the ultimate privilege thing where a lot of things that quote unquote rich people can, you know, afford works out cheaper than the kind of budget yeah. option. It's the, uh, what is it? The the Discworld Sam, Sam Vimes boots theory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where you buy the cheap boots, but you have to buy the cheap boots every year. And over 10 years, it adds up to more than the expensive boots once. Oh, the boots theory is 100% true. <laughs> I was doing that math in my head the other day because I was like, I catch the bus home from work in the evenings. And sometimes, like when my tattoo was healing, I was catching the bus to work as well. And it was like $7 a day for this trip. And I was just like, 
Because I've been thinking about buying an e-bike, but then, you know, they're very expensive. And I'm like, probably if I do the math, it's going to work out cheaper just to buy the e-bike than to catch the bus to and from work every day. And lo and behold, it does work out cheaper. Hmm. Does that mean, can you take it on the bus if it's really miserable weather? That would be the question I would ask. Yeah, they've got like little spaces for bikes, so you could. Hmm. Because you don't want to be stuck on a bike when it's like raining cats and dogs and I don't know illegal Australian possums or something. (laughs) No, exactly. (laughs) Um, So did you have a moment of wonder this week? I did have a moment of wonder. So last Sunday evening, I went to a drag show at a a local restaurant. Yay! Um, It was a fundraiser for the Wellington Pride Parade. So we, you know, booked dinner and a show, basically. So you got dinner and dessert and you know, yeah, I went with my mate Hannah and some of her friends and I tend to always go to a lot of drag things with Hannah. She's like, my drag friend, you know, we do all these cool <laughs> things. And it was just like, it was just so joyful. There's something so absolutely joyful about drag that you just don't get anywhere else. And it was just this moment where they do this big show. So there was, I think, from memory, six queens and... It was a beautiful day and they would actually go out of the restaurant and go onto the street and like do like a strut down the street and do like a dance and like everything, like a lip sync through the windows of the restaurant. So it felt like really, it felt like really special. I don't know what it was about it. It just felt really cool that they were going outside and doing Mm. this thing and people inside the restaurant were losing their minds when they did that. Everyone was like (laughs) up and pressed against the windows and, you know, whooping and hollering and clapping and carrying on. And it was just absolute unbridled joy from people and I just love seeing that I see I love seeing these moments where people just let go of all the restraints that hold you in place like the decorum of society and to just like fully enjoy something in a way that like you would have as a kid I think like that childish wonder yeah yeah not enough of that and so like that was my moment of wonder just being like yeah look we can have we can have this we can be joyful yay I'm so glad it looked amazing in your Instagram stories I was I was fully impressed. Okay, how about you? Did you have a moment of wonder this week? I did. Um, So I do Pilates, and I do Pilates with my friend Jo, who's like, she has like hunted me down and made me into her friend, because she is an extrovert, and I am not. And I am so grateful for Jo. She's got two beautiful kids, um, and her youngest, her dad watches while we do Pilates. Yesterday, her dad couldn't stay the whole time, so we had Charlotte, aged three, doing (laughs) Pilates with us. So I got my little towel out for her and the teacher had like a tiny little band, like a little stretchy band for her to use. Like it was like kid sized and she got her own yoga block and like Charlotte, the three-year-old was doing Pilates with us and it was so good. Um, I just had this like overwhelming love for her youth and like, I'm going to do it too. And she had her leg up and she had the band on her foot and she was doing the stretching with us. And, like, she had her little snack and she put it on her yoga block. And she's like, look, Jen, it's a tray and a table and a yoga block. Like, she discovered this amazing thing. If, if we could all just, like, access that sometimes, I think life would be so beautiful. Oh, that's so lovely. It was super cute. I love that we've both told stories about unlocking childish joy. <laughs> that's it. I think the saddest thing about being an adult is that we don't play as much, right? Because mm, we've been told not to. It's like my colleague who doesn't watch chi- like kids' movies, right? Because he thinks it's childish. It's like, what have you deprived yourself of? We should be allowed to play. All right, would you like to kick off the chapter summaries? Sure thing. 
So, in Chapter 11, we have Richard Dornhunter braving Dean's Fog to find the Blackfriars, an order of monks who protect the key. Hunter wins a fight against one, and Dor answers another's riddle, which leaves Richard to face the ordeal of the key. Meanwhile, the Marquis de Carabas is being tortured by Krupp and Bandemar. Chapter 12. Richard faces the ordeal, during which he can't remember why he's doing anything, and apparitions of people he loved try to convince him that he's mad and that he should end his life. The memory of anesthesia saves him, and he survives the ordeal. Hunter notes that there's something different about him, and Dor is overjoyed. So, very intense. <laughs> yeah, this is a really uh, heavy chapter. Chapter 12 was just a lot. Because the whole thing is just Richard. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is. It's Richard and... I couldn't decide this whole time. I'll I'll put this question to you because I really couldn't decide. Is his obliviousness what saved him ultimately? Like, because he's just so like, do-do-do-do-do, whatever. Like, you know what I mean? He's kind of bumbling. He's bumbling through his life. He's bumbling through his London below life. Is that what actually kind of like, he just can't get deep so he doesn't get too deep in the like pull of the ordeal itself? He doesn't actually allow himself to engage with anything, right? And I think that the ordeal sort of forces him to do that. Like they forcing him to be like, hey, just, just think about what is going on. But he is almost incapable of doing that. It's like he can't really allow himself to do that, to get pulled under. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like a little, a little fail safe switch for him that stops him from tumbling down too deep. Yeah, it's like the lack of connection is what they're preying on, but it's also kind of what saves him because he does have this lack of connection with the people in London above. But when he lists his friends, he's like, oh, Dor, Anesthesia, Hunter. Like he immediately has friends that he can think of. And it's not the same. I don't know that I would call Hunter a friend, for example, but like he does feel like those connections are more valuable and more real. Yeah, it's like the things that should be triggering to him and should be devastating to him, like Gary being really mean to him. And, you know, Jessica basically just saying whatever she was saying. It's like that those are the things that should be absolutely devastating. But because he never fully engaged in his life, he was never fully present. It doesn't really hurt him. And it's like the fact that he finds that bead from Anesthesia's necklace that reminds him of what he's doing. It's like he's always Mm -hmm. more present in London below than he ever was in London above. Mm, I agree. Because there's that line where Gary says, do you still need to be told what to do or something like that? And I'm like, that's Richard's entire problem, right? He never did anything unless someone told him to do it. And this this is him rejecting that in the end, right? And I think even at the start of this section, we sort of see him starting to change. Like the ordeal Hunter observes that it's changed him. But I think he's already starting to change. Like the fact that he pushes Hunter on her motivation, I think is quite, it's, it's a telling thing. I don't feel like... Richard at the start of this book would have done that, but now he yeah. wa- he's pushing her. He's like, okay, so what is your motivation? He wants to know. Did you catch that he asked her that three times before she answered? I mm-hmm. thought that was really interesting. Yeah, because I feel like past Richard would have let it go. If she didn't say anything the first time, it would have like bumbled off and done something else. But he's already starting to, to change, right? I was, I was actually quite proud of him. I thought it was really compassionate of him to be asking questions. Like there's something to be said for a small talk. I know a lot of people who really like loathe the idea of small talk. But the truth is, it's a societal construct that allows us to facilitate communication in a safe way until we can get comfortable enough to trust the other person to be vulnerable with them. I've actually done a lot of reframing of small talk because I actually Mm. hate, you know, I'm a massive introvert and I prefer not to talk to people where at all possible. But (laughs) I've 
I've realised it's not that I hate small talk. I hate having to be the one to make the small talk. And I feel Mm. that often in awkward situations, I'm so acutely aware of when a situation is, in my mind, turning awkward that I cannot stand, Mm. you know, the silence. And then I have to fill it with small talk. And it would be nice if someone else did that so that I didn't have to carry the burden of the small talk. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so I think Richard filling the silence is actually, like you said, a compassionate thing. Because he's like, okay, Mm. I will fill this void this is why we're friends because i actually really enjoy chatting to people and i am shameless about asking questions uh sometimes this gets me in trouble because i don't always know what questions are okay to ask but yeah i don't i don't feel uncomfortable with silence but i also just really like to know people so i will ask (laughs) them lots and lots of questions amazing fill my silences (laughs) (laughs) yes one benefit of adhd is that we really like to know and we really like to talk generally so yeah I think it's important to have a friend like you. Like I, when I go to a party, I always try to take at least like one really extroverted friend with me so that they can do all the talking and I can just stand <laughs> next to them. I'm like, I am present and here is the person who shall be engaging for me as my proxy, pushing them in front. I thought that was a bit of a transformation. Hunter transforms Richard's knowledge by adding to it, which I thought was really interesting. Like she keeps giving him answers when no one else will. Mm. Um, which is really lovely of her but she's preparing him for the world of London Below without him really understanding that that's what she's doing yeah she's a lot more forthcoming and I think we've discussed that before as like an act of compassion on her part where she actually Mm -hmm. takes the time to explain things to him I feel like Dor was a bit more patient with him as well in this Yeah, I saw that too. Yeah, she was like talking about the fog and answering his questions even though, you know, Richard is it's so infuriating because he always contradicts everything. They're like, pea soup. And he's he like, not- oh, didn't they stop years ago? Oh, mate, just. <laughs> what? Yeah, that one got me. Like, why doesn't he know that? And look, I realize I know that because I used to read a lot of the Francis Hodgson Burnett, you know, Secret Garden, A Little Princess. And they mm-hmm. always talked about the terrible air quality, especially Little Princess, which is like one of my top like five children's books. Um, But yeah, like it didn't didn't Richard also watch that season of The Crown where. They I know about that devastating <laughs> <laughs> when she was like uh yeah there was one in 1952 that they estimate killed like 4,000 people and I wrote in the margins the crown <laughs> <laughs> me too <laughs> oh god okay anyway back back to our yeah, <laughs> yeah sorry I thought there was a transformation theme going through kind of the description of London Below, I felt there was like a lot of evocative description. You know, there's the rushing river and the Mm. lake and then the swamp and the fog and all of that is transformative in a way that it it transforms Richard's memory of London above into this kind of wild landscape of London Below. So it kind of subverts Mm. it. But also like the fog physically transforms places. You know, like when there's a really thick fog and you can't really recognize where you are and everything looks a bit different. So I feel like there's a lot of that going on. I definitely noticed the way that the ground kept changing beneath their feet. Mm. And it was a river and then it was just marshy and then it was watery mud. And like it was always different and still terrible. But like it was just changing as they were walking closer and closer to the actual Blackfriars. I guess their abbey. Yeah, it must be, right? And if there's an abbot. Then there should be an Abbey. Um, I thought the Blackfriars were very interesting. They act with a lot of compassion, um, but it seems very, uh, like it's mechanical almost. Like they act with compassion because they care for the people who undertake the pilgrimage but don't die. Um, 
they inter the ones that do die, but then they'll like care for the ones that are basically driven to insanity throughout the rest of their natural life. But there was a definite lack of compassion in the way that they thought about them and treated them. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think of it as like being driven to insanity. I thought it was botched suicide attempts. So it's people who have Mm. tried to take their lives and haven't quite died yet, if that makes sense. So if you think about someone jumping in front of a train, but not dying. Oh, okay. That's how I thought what was going on but it's interesting but Mm. mental anguish would also would also work right yeah so for me the reason i twigged on the mental anguish of it was because the the loss of personhood between Mm. the beginning of the ordeal and the end of it they come back and they're not people Mm. yeah the line was something about uh like a gibbering thing babbling gibbering thing let's see if i can find it Oh, he found himself hoping for a quick, clean death. The last Mm. pilgrim had lasted for almost a year, a gibbering, screaming thing. Yeah. So so there's this definite depersonalization of these people. It goes on to say, Brother Jet, who had cared for the creature, still woke in the night, screaming with its twisted face before him. And I think that's why I thought maybe it was like a, yeah, someone had been physically deformed because twisted Mm. face. But I suppose you could have a twisted face through like screaming or like anguish as well well maybe we're both right it could be both why not the people who come out of the other side so i guess the compassion that they have by caring for these people is part of their duty and they're kind but it's their job yeah but in the same way they're not compassionate in the way that they treat them because they're not treated like people but they're still people right that's an interesting point like is it still compassion when it's duty like you know they are a religious order essentially and they're doing it because they Mm. believe it is the right thing to do like that is what they're called to do is that still compassion if you're just doing it because you think you have to does it matter does the motivation Mm. for compassion matter i don't think the motivation matters so much no i mean look would you do that job would you so in in our world like unless you're called to clergy Mm. like you know what you're getting into when you become a nun or a monk (laughs) you know what it's going to be about right yeah you're not going to do it if you are not up to the task yeah good point yeah and most of the most of the religious orders i think really focus on some sort of service not just quiet contemplation but service as well so Mm. if you don't want to do the service you go into an order that's more about the quiet contemplation if you do want to do the service that's where you go yeah like you get a choice in it it's part of the like option of vocation yeah Yeah. that makes sense um i thought the offering of tea before the ordeal was also an Mm. act of compassion from them being like oh we'll have a cup of tea but then richard was like no thank you i just want to get it over and done with (laughs) and i think yeah it's maybe this idea of like you you think you're doing a kind thing but actually you're just prolonging someone's agony yeah i definitely have had that where i'm like let's just do the thing let's just get it over with i kind of feel like that when you have to go for an appointment before something like you know the appointment beforehand where they tell you about everything they're gonna do and i get that that is important but i actually don't want that i just want to do the thing i don't want to think about it i don't want to talk about it i just want to come in (laughs) knock me unconscious and let's go explain it and then do it don't make me think about it for three weeks until i have to come back and really do it and i've had a couple of times where i've turned up for things where i've made an appointment for something and i've turned up and then the first appointment is them just talking about process and i'm like i don't want this like i came in here mentally prepared for whatever Mm. it was like we were gonna do and now you just want to talk to me for half an hour like no Mm. (laughs) word to the wise kids if you're starting therapy your first appointment will 100% 
100% be yeah. not therapy. It will be talking about what you want to get from therapy and what you need and what you hope to achieve. So go in knowing that so you can have those conversations. It's like a first date. You don't you don't have to marry that therapist, so yeah. to speak. And this is like, I had this the other day where I went for a facial. You would think that's a really easy thing. But no, no, we first had to have an appointment where we talked about my skin and like what I'd noticed and what I'd like. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. I just want to go in and get a fa- This is why I go to like, you know, this was quite a posh place. And I was like, this is why I don't go to these places because everything becomes a big deal. If I just go to a normal place, they will just do my facial and I can leave. But no. This is amazing. I have never had a facial. Well, I would highly recommend them. I've been doing them a lot this year and I've actually really enjoyed it. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. I'm trying to go like every month, which is very decadent, but it's the year of doing things for myself. So yeah, that is good. I'm going to start running on Monday. I'm a little bit nervous, but I have to start my half marathon training. So I will join you mm. and I will message Amazing. you about it and we can suffer together. I am already looking forward to whinging about it at nauseum. So I'm sorry, everybody who has to hear me complain. <laughs> Please complain to me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Solved. Uh, we have lots more to talk about, actually. I had lo- I found so much transformation aside from Richard's entire ordeal of transformation. Mm. Like the ordeal was a transformation. And I just I wondered about the worthiness, the idea of worthiness. Mm. What makes him worthy? I'm not saying it. And maybe this is really cruel of me to say, but like he's just your bog standard white dude. Yeah. Why has he succeeded when so many others have not? Yeah. Like, is it because he has this quest that's not his? He's not getting the key for himself. He's getting it for Dor. That was the only thing I could think of that made him special was he wasn't getting it for himself. Like Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Yes, because he's not the hero. Like, in that way, he's not the hero of the story, right? Like, he is just Mm. along for the ride and therefore he's just a tool to get the key. It makes you wonder if Dor had gone in there or Hunter, would they have survived the ordeal? Yeah, I don't know. I also think there's certainly something about how costed his life has been to this point. Mm. I mean, even Richard has said like his life prepared him for afternoons, Sunday afternoons, watching football on television, not for dealing with whatever it is in London below he has to deal with. So because he has this sort of skimming over life and not really going deep, the pain didn't seem to impact him the way it would someone who loved deeply and felt deeply. And I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I hesitate to say that his pain wasn't enough or whatever, but it it's it's superficial, right? Everything about him yes. feels superficial because his life was superficial, and so his pain feels superficial. Yeah, and you know he talks about when Jessica turns up. You know she is very compassionate towards him, and he's never seen that expression on her face, and he's never seen her hurt. I'm like, you were together for eighteen months. Are you telling me that you've never seen her hurt? Has he not been looking? And also, is that why he treats her with such so little compassion? Because I feel like he's mm. quite cruel towards her, at, you know, at various times. Yeah, he doesn't see people as fully realised. Like, even mm. Gary is not fully formed. Like, he doesn't really know anything about Gary. How can someone hurt you when you don't actually fully know them, right? That's. I think that's exactly what I'm feeling from this, that, like, Richard doesn't have this, like, internal pain because he hasn't let anyone get that close. Because the deepest hurts are from the people that you were vulnerable with and that you opened yourself up with and thought that you could trust, right? And when you, they then do something like this, something hurtful, like, that is a betrayal of your trust and that is what wounds you. Yeah. Someone you barely know make someone you worked with who makes a slight towards you says something mean about your trolls is like eh. I did feel sad for him when they, he was being mean about his trolls but 
Yeah. And also because they weren't his necessarily. He picked one up once and then the, the other ones were brought to him. And yet again, like that's again superficiality, right? Like it's this thing, like he's being attacked for his attachment to something which isn't even really his attachment. Yes. Um, I like that Anesthesia survived as a memory to help Richard. She's obviously had such a massive impact on Richard when you think that he knew her for what, mm. an hour, two hours, but he watched her die essentially, right? And like, yeah. he was incredibly vulnerable in that moment, having his entire world ripped away from him. And she was the first person who really engaged with him. And I think that's probably the first time that we've seen Richard make a meaningful connection, which is why yeah. she can pull him out of this. Cause she's not on that train platform saying mean things to him. Maybe that would have yeah. been different it was if it was anesthesia and door doing that. Yeah. Wonder why we didn't see anyone that he knows now. Or maybe the ordeal just looks at what he wants and then makes it the worst possible option, right? I feel like the ordeal's custom for everybody who goes in it. Yeah, I think that too. And I thought as well like it was like playing on the fact that he wants to go back and it's kinda of saying, But no one wants you to come back. And if you mm. don't have a motivation for doing what you're doing, then what is the point? Yeah. It felt like um, Gary and Jessica were the, the two ideas of like depression. The grief that you're never going to be the way you were and that you've hurt everyone you love. And then also like you're a burden. Mm. You should just end it all. I, I mean, like we all know that depression is a liar. I, I just I felt like that was a really interesting way of like framing what it was like to have depression as somebody who has depression. Mm. and is in treatment for it and like really does not love having depression i think it was a really hard chapter in that way yeah i never felt like i was actually a burden to anybody but i certainly wouldn't have reached out to burden anyone with what i was going through yeah no i think that's a very good point and i did think that too it made me feel a lot of compassion for richard from my mm. point of view because i used to see this a lot Especially when I lived in London and there were a couple of times when a train would be delayed because someone had done that and people would be yeah. come into the office and be really annoyed because they're late to work and it's such a selfish act to do such a thing and like think of the driver and think of this and think of that. And I'm like, yep, all true. You know, it's an incredibly traumatizing thing for a driver to have to go through. I think what people often neglect when they talk about it is the fact that for people who do these things, often the act is an act of compassion. The way they view it is like they feel like yeah. they're saving their loved ones from their own misery. Yeah. It comes from a place of wanting to ease other people's suffering. And I think people often don't talk about that. Yeah. I have definitely been in that position where you start to weigh up the hurt that you're inflicting on people for being the way that you are against what if I just wasn't here anymore? Would that be so terrible? You know, like you make these decisions. Mm. And I think I think it's something that people don't really acknowledge a lot of. There was a book I read, um, The Valedictorian of Being Dead by Heather B. Armstrong. I read this book because she's she has treatment resistant depression and she was talking about how like no matter what she was doing it wasn't working and she ended up doing this really interesting thing where they basically put her under in sedation like hmm. basically into a coma 10 times and the idea is that it kind of like resets something in your brain but I remember when I was reading it she just thought well as depressed as I am like what's the point of me being their mother like is it is it going to traumatize them to have this mm. but between like the fifth and the sixth session she just stopped wanting to die mm, that's interesting we're not very good at staying alive sometimes as humans no and that's an interesting thing because like that's something I think I've definitely learned 
living with depression and stuff is like I always say to myself no matter how terrible you feel right now you felt this way before and you know that you don't always feel like this and that is the thing you have Mm. to remind yourself because that's what depression tries to tell you it tries to tell you that you're always going to feel terrible and this is just your life and you like factually incorrect it's not always going to be like that there will be moments of joy and happiness and you just have to ride it out as annoying as that is yeah there's a facet of ADHD which is that you never get all of the things you want that you're always wanting something they're just starting to do research into it it's really interesting but I've always felt really guilty that I don't feel satisfied oh interesting but that just turns out to be another aspect of the disorder I have and I can now see that it's part of it and go oh okay so that goes in the ADHD box I don't need to feel like that's a personal failing <laughs> it's so just... yeah it's so helpful to have a frame right like to have a frame of reference exactly you're gonna be okay kids yeah and absolutely just having a frame of reference for the way you feel can make the massive massive difference so yeah that's why I'm always telling people if you need the diagnosis get it and if you don't need the diagnosis but the treatment could apply to you and maybe help then try it yeah absolutely and there's so many like helpful resources out there and like so much support available absolutely don't do what I did and like put it off for years and years because your mum made you think that there was some sort of social stigma involved in getting a a diagnosis or seeking help oh yeah or don't do what I did and decide that you see one therapist once who was pretty terrible and then go oh it's not for me no it's okay try a different therapist absolutely cannot agree hard enough like try a different therapist try different types of therapy like one day you will find one and it will literally change your life like I cannot speak highly enough for my therapist that I found last year who has literally changed my life and she is just amazing and if I gave up after the first time I never would have had that experience so yeah 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 I just yeah Richard is interesting because he's almost he's going through the ordeal but he's not present in the ordeal I think we can agree on that he's yet again yeah sort of removed from it yeah there, there was a lot of it that I thought you know it felt like he was in a play that he didn't have the lines for mm. Um, because the fake Gary was urging him to do himself in and he was just like, what, huh? What? And even when fake Gary morphed himself into clean and tidy Richard, like it just didn't seem to land. Mm. What did you make of the girl and the daughter or the, the woman and her daughter? Oh yeah. When the mom's like, don't look at him. Why do people like that stay alive? She asked curiously. Not enough guts to end it all, explained her mother. Melody, that's the girl, risked another glance at Richard. Pathetic, she said. Show me a child who would actually say that. Yeah, it doesn't seem real, does it? But I guess that's the thing. It's like this whole ordeal is kind of a a simulation of what reality is, of what real life is. And maybe London Below can't do an, a, you know, an accurate representation of London Above because it doesn't actually know. So this magic that exists can't really make a real world for Richard that can trigger him because they don't yeah. know what his world is also that cruelty seems really out of character for a child yeah absolutely and i think you can definitely see a kid like staring and pointing at someone kids do that all the time but they're more likely to be like why is that person smelly and sick why is that person why is that yeah why is that person lying on the ground stuff like that like my kids and i think my kids are exceptionally amazing but they would probably be more worried that they were hurt or sick not like, why haven't they killed themselves yeah, yet? That's so bizarre. Just... Like, what is what is happening in that kid's home life to <laughs> generate that kind of question? Must be a Malfoy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, what is it with British authors thinking that children are fully formed as 11-year-olds who are literally evil? Like, can we just... <laughs> Sidebar. 
children aren't evil. They're just kind of bratty for the most part. If they're acting in an evil way, something can be done to help them. They're mirrors of their environment 99% of the time. Like, Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway. So the girl was very strange. That really took me out of the story even. I was a bit like, is that a marker to tell me that this is not a real environment? Or is this just what Richard thinks people would say about other homeless disadvantaged people is it a representation of his internal monologue did he ever look at homeless people and think that i don't think he would have like what we've seen of richard is that he's incredibly compassionate to homeless people and you know the dispossessed he didn't necessarily want to like fix the problem but he was happy giving them a pound coin he would make eye contact like he didn't not see them yeah i didn't like that richard thought that jessica had never been compassionate either that really bothered me yeah, I just, he had never seen that expression on her face before. I'm like, wow. It really says more about him than it does about her, right? Because this is his impression of her in his brain, right? It's just yet again, it's the same feeling I got when he didn't recognize the exhibition at the British Museum. I feel like this is something he should mm. know about someone that he was engaged to and with for 18 months. Even if he didn't necessarily love her, like, you were present in her life. You spent all this time with her. You went to all these exhibitions with her on the weekend. Like, you can't sit there and say to me that, oh, I've never seen her as compassionate. I've never seen her hurt before. What, never? And if that's the case, then she wasn't being vulnerable with him. So, like, there was no genuine love between them. Which maybe is the whole thing, right? Yeah. I do feel like she was giving as much of herself as she could, whereas I don't think the same is true of Richard. Yeah, I don't think Richard ever gave anything. I think that's what we're getting at, right? It's like Richard has Mm. never given himself to anyone. I don't even know if he knows who he is. Like, he can't give himself because he doesn't have anything to give. He's just a passenger in this life. Yeah, he's not present. Yeah, that was one of the things I actually thought was very interesting. The end of the ordeal before he's back in the shrine. Richard had no idea who he was anymore. No idea what was or what was not true, nor whether he was brave or cowardly, mad or sane, but he knew the next thing he had to do. He stepped on the train and all the lights went out. So he just does what he always does. Takes the next step. Doesn't stop to think about it. I I honestly think that his cluelessness is kind of what gets him through. Yeah, and I think this is also why he was so easy to erase from London above. It's so easy to erase something that was never really present. I think about, like, the way that one person who can have like a huge impact on your life but then there are people who like you maybe see all the time and you wouldn't notice them at all um so we totally last week did not talk at all about the marquee so maybe we should like do a little recap of what's happening with the marquee okay so the yeah the marquee went to the hospital where Krupp and Van and I hang out and basically did a massive ploy mm. and tried to outrun them but you can't outrun Krupp and Van and then they caught him knocked him unconscious and now they have strung him up yeah and and i thought this was really interesting i thought this was a transformation because he says he is not brave he knows he's a coward but then he does something that is really brave Mm. where he spits on them to get them to basically hasten his death so that he doesn't have to suffer like it'll be horrible but quicker is his thinking but that's actually quite like ballsy to do i think yeah i absolutely agree and i thought that it was really Interesting. I'm just trying to find that bit where he kind of describes himself. Um, because I actually thought the whole thing about the Marquis was a really good example of transformation. Where is it? Yeah. Yeah, so page 239, um, he says, 
He had long since decided that the world above or below was a place that wished to be deceived, and to this end he had named himself from a lie in a fairy tale and created himself, his clothes, his manners, his carriage, as a grand joke. So he is just kind of the epitome of transformation, right? He transformed Mm. himself into what he needed to be to survive in this world, and Dawes' dad has this moment where she says he might well be a monster, which we've discussed previously, so he's transformed himself in what he thinks the world needs him to be so that he can prosper and survive. And then in this moment of his death, he transforms himself again. He's like, well, this doesn't work now. Um, I know I'm not a brave man, but I'm going to do this thing, like you said, of this act. So it's a real, yeah, transformative moment. I think there is a lot of parallel between the Marquis and Richard. Neither of them really go very deep. Now, the Marquis is more cruel and Richard is more compassionate, but both of them live in this like constructed identity that isn't necessarily like what they would even consider genuine. It's just Richard isn't aware of that. And the Marquis is extremely aware of it. Yeah, he's in on the joke, whereas Richard isn't. Yeah. Richard just thinks that like existing is fine and has never really considered what he actually wants Would we say that Hunter's identity is also then a construction? Because her identity is all about hunting down these mythical beasts, right? Yeah, yeah, I found that really interesting. That explains where she's been, right? Mm. But I wonder where Dor fits into the hunt for this beast. I wonder what's going to happen. Why she thinks that being the body... Because, like, it's obvious she's the bodyguard for a reason. Mm -hmm. Like, she's there for a reason. I don't know which person is the one in on it but like i don't think she's there benignly i don't think she's there out of the goodness of her heart she thinks that door is going to lead her to the beast of london which is why she's with door or that protecting door will get her someone who can lead her to the beast i think um i don't know it's it's you you know you do meet those people whose job is their like identity Mm. and i feel like that's very much her like she is hunter she is the hunter she hunts the beasts under the cities and she has for unknown number of years right centuries even what happens when they're gone i mean what is what is it about these particular beasts is she like those dentists who go over and kill lions you know what i mean or is she like providing a needed service to keep the under cities safe for the the citizens of under those cities like i don't understand what the role is kind of reminds me of odysseus in a way you know he goes on these grand adventures because adventuring is kind of his identity he has to be the smart Mm. one the clever one and he just goes and does these things and he makes his way back home to Ithaca and like to Penelope but when he's there he's not happy because that's not what he needs yeah he can't even turn up and like in a normal way no (laughs) yeah he has to like pretend to be some old guy and then like trick his son and then get his son in on it and then like murder everybody yeah did you have any tangential marginalia or any just because marginalia um, yes so i i noticed that you also wrote this down but it was about the black friars all being named with names corresponding to black somehow so you've got jet you've mm. got sable you've got philigenous i don't know how to say that word yeah. philigenous <laughs> brother philigenous uh, which means like sooty covered in soot that's nice for him <laughs> Yeah, I am. Um, I had to look that up on my girlfriend, the OED, but she came through. She came in clutch. I assume that you, when you join the order, however you manage to join the order, you choose your name and you choose a name that's yeah. related. Don't you get a confirmation name if you're Catholic or something and you do the, what is it that you do it? You're about 14 when this happens and you choose a saint's name oh, as like an additional name. I didn't know that. 
Yeah, I think you choose a name, right? You choose like a holy name. Yeah, you you shed your old identity and are reborn into this like order. But I kind of love it. I mean, Jet Sable and uh, Fuliginous. <laughs> what a name. Fuliginous. <laughs> what a concept, being like sooty. I mean, I like sooty as like being a bit knocked off, you know, when you're sooty. You're sooty about something. Oh, is that a but saying? That's a thing. I love it. I'm pretty sure that's a thing. When you're a bit dark on something, you know. It's sooty. Trying to think what I would say. Cross, I'd probably say. Oh, feeling cross. But I have small children, so everything I say is like really PG. Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to say. Oh, yes. I thought it was really interesting that the abbot described waiting as a sin. Because he's like, moments were meant to be experienced. And it's like sinful if you're just waiting for something and not making the most of every moment. Yeah, that is a really interesting thing. That's actually something I struggle with personally a lot. Oh, okay. As I'm sure you know, I have a hard time sitting still Mm -hmm. and doing just one thing at a time. Um, So... I will often structure every waiting period of my life by having hand sewing or having a book in my bag or having emails to send on my phone. Like every spare minute is full because I need to be engaged. And that like part of that is ADHD. And part of that is just living in a capitalist society that has made me believe that productivity is the only like acceptable Mm -hmm. outcome. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I guess like 10% of it is that I actually like do have to run two children like their lives and their appointments and IEP meetings and like educating their teachers on their personalities and blah, 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 blah. Like I actually do a lot of this stuff, but I really struggle with just sitting and being and it's really hard for me. But I I did think that it was really nice that at Pilates, I'm actually okay with just kind of like doing just Pilates. Mm, that's cool. And this is another thing where I'm actually okay with doing just this. Mm-hmm. Like it's enough for me, which I really love. Oh, that's so nice. That's really nice. Thanks for helping me find a thing that's enough oh, of course it's interesting because you're you're right it's this kind of capitalist thing that we've been taught that if you are not productive you are not valuable right so mm-hmm. i had this exact mm-hmm. thing when i was messaging you this morning saying how absolutely drained i am because of everything i've been doing and i was just like the only mm-hmm. thing i wanted to do was just stay in bed all day but in the back of my head it was like you need to do this and you need to do this and you know you can't just spend the whole day in bed because then you're not being valuable and you know it's such a nice sunny day and like it's such a waste if you're just in bed and i was like you really have to talk yourself down from that give yourself permission to just rest sometimes i have to trick my own brain into being like actually i'll do this thing which is totally productive like i'll watch a movie i've been meaning to watch but it's like a movie i've seen a hundred times before (laughs) so like you're kind of like i will be productive and finally rewatch the princess bride i've been meaning to for months now and like you're just enjoying yourself so just have like a little cache of those maybe yeah always good (laughs) because you deserve rest and sometimes it's really hard to Tell yourself that you're allowed to take it and have it. Yeah, and I think it's something I've definitely learned over the last year is just being more flexible as well, like allowing myself to be flexible. Because I think I I definitely had a tendency to make plans and set them in stone and be like, this is what I'm doing on this day, blah, blah, blah. And now Mm. I'm like, so today, you know, I wanted to go for a run. I've been to CrossFit the last couple of days, so I'm really sore. And then, of course, I've been really run down just from, like, extroversion. And I was like, okay, well, Sunday was going to be your rest day. Make today your rest day. You can go for a run tomorrow. You don't have to do it today. Like, you, ha- I have to have these conversations with yeah. myself, but I'm allowing myself to do that. And I'm not, like, having this really horrible internal monologue where I'm like, you're a total failure because you're not doing the thing. I'm just like, no, flexibility oh, is key. Yeah. I know that one. I-, I do that one a lot where it's like, I haven't done it. I'm going to fail everything. I... I often do things like 100% or, like, 0%. There's no in-between. <laughs> yeah, I have to convince myself to, like be okay with doing half the job sometimes 
And not starting things is another thing, like Mm. not doing all of it. I just keep going back to you cannot serve from an empty Mm. vessel, right? Like you can't give to others unless you've given to yourself. You you have to fill your own jug up before you can pour the cup Uh, for others. Yeah, right. right. And that's kind of like why I was struggling at the end of this week because my cup was like beyond empty, right? So I can't be patient with other people because there's nothing to give, right? Yeah. You can't take blood from a stone. Yeah. I, I was trying to find the difference between like valuable time useful time and also like just experiencing it as it was because isn't experiencing waiting just as valuable you would think so isn't that the whole point of like mindfulness and things like that just being present and just like sitting in a moment right yeah like i am experiencing the anticipation of these pilgrims coming like why did the abbot think it was a sin to wait or to do other things while waiting like it's okay to multitask Hmm. if you want to there are so many things especially in as you would know like having any sort of life where you like rely on other people like you turn up and then your friend's not there you're waiting it's okay to wait for something your dentist is running late you wait like that's fine or you're running late you can wait like your friends are waiting it's waiting in itself isn't a terrible thing anticipating a change or an arrival of an event is not in itself a bad it's almost a moment in and of itself the anticipation right like yeah I think that can always be, like, it's interesting that it's come from an, an abbot who's been, like, waiting, as I said, when I think the anticipation can almost be holy in a way, when you think about it. It could be a holy moment. It's really hard for me to wait for things, so I really like the idea of being able to sit in the waiting of That's kind of like what makes Christmas so awesome, I think. It's like, it's this entire yeah, build yes. up to this one day, and we're waiting, and you're, as a kid, you're waiting for Santa to come, and you're just waiting for the magic, and... You're experiencing all this magic because you're waiting. It's all the various yeah, things that lead to it. Exactly. There's real joy in allowing anticipation to exist. Maybe by actually waiting, you can spend more time being ready to fully experience it when it arrives. I don't yeah, know. you make yourself ready to be more open to the experience, perhaps. and yeah, More engaged. More, engaged. more appreciative of it. Yeah. That's good. I think that's what I'm going to take from it. Like, the abbot might not be correct on this. It's okay to wait. It's okay to do other things while you wait. But it's also okay to just experience waiting. Yes, I agree. Well, did you have a character you'd like to spotlight? Yes, even though she wasn't really there, I just wanted to spotlight Anesthesia because she had such a short time in Richard's life, but she made such a big impact that he was able to remember these magnificent details about her very sad and short existence and she made such an impression on him that she was able to kind of pull him back from the literal brink and i don't know that i would say i've met people that i've spent a few hours with who have changed me that profoundly Mm. but for someone so small and seemingly insignificant and who was taken by night terrors basically She's had an amazing effect on him. And I just, like, I think that's really wonderful. It's lovely. How about you? Did you have anyone you wanted to spotlight? So mine's a bit odd this week. I actually wanted to spotlight the abbot. Because I Mm. think, you know, he runs this order of monks, friars, whatever they are. Holy Holy men. men. And, you know, he goes through the motions and he's done this many times. And he's kind of dreading these pilgrims turning up, even though... You know, it's his job to, like, host them and get them through this thing. Because, you know, he, he anticipates that it's going to be a terrible time and someone's going to die and it's going to be very sad. And then it isn't. 
And he's in a way, he's like surprised that, oh, Richard has survived. But yeah. then at the end of the, the chapter, he's like, we've lost the key. God help us all. And I just think that's so interesting because he's been entrusted with keeping this key safe. And now he has, in his words, lost it. So he has failed mm. at his sacred duty in a way. But someone, you know, he's also relieved that Richard didn't die. So it's just like kind of conflict in him where he's like, his duty has come up against what is right and what is good, I suppose. And I just think... Yeah. He's in such an interesting position where he goes through the motions of his work and then his work is completely disrupted. Because what is the purpose of them now that the key's no longer there? Does the order disband? Yeah. Like, I had that thought too. Are, are they going to transform into something different? Are they going to hunt them down because... and try to get the key back? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I. It's a very strange duty that they have, right? Like, it, it's one of those things where, like, a lot of things about London Below, it doesn't really make sense. They allow people to search for the key, but their entire job is keeping mm. it safe so that people can search for it and maybe be worthy. And there's... There's something Indiana Jones-ish about it. You know There what doesn't I mean? seem to be any plan for when someone is worthy, right? There's no guidebook where they're like, okay, now you go on your way or whatever. Um, so I kind of just wanted to give a blessing to him because I feel like for people who go through through life without a script and try to do their best and try to look after other people you know yeah. it can be really hard and to find your entire world kind of your world view completely shaken up in one afternoon it's quite a challenging yeah. thing and by someone who can't even quote Shakespeare properly yeah <laughs> I like the abbot too and I like that Richard liked him I thought that it was good that he was able to immediately yeah trust I think him. even with Richard not appreciating the abbot's tea fair enough I don't want to make nice with someone who's waiting for me to die either i just want to get it over with i understand that completely yeah. and he did have it after the ordeal which i thought was quite fun actually reminds me of the nuns in good omens you know when the whole job is to like switch the antichrist or whatever as they do and then crowley burns their abbey down so at least for them there was an end to it like they were like you've served your purpose and now we're gonna basically kill you all um so i suppose it could have been worse for the black friars <laughs> yeah um, cool. Well, next week we'll be reading chapters 13 and 14 through the theme of integrity, which should be meaty. Yeah, it should be interesting. And maybe we'll have to dig a little deeper. I felt like this one was like, oh, and here's your transformation on this silver platter. And here's your transformation on this silver platter. I felt like this was a really easy It was week. a good one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It was a nice happenstance. We, we did kind of pick these things a bit randomly. So I'm glad that we've been handed some that are a little bit harder and some that are this one was a little bit easier, despite the heavy Which subject Which is probably matter. good that it was a bit easier, because there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for potting with me. I love our chat. Me too. Thank you so much. Always insightful. Aww, you too. I'm just so glad that we get this opportunity, and I'm glad we've made it a weekly ritual. I look forward to it so much. It's a highlight, definitely, and it's nice to just have it in my calendar and know that it's happening, and yeah. Well, I will chat to you next Amazing. week. Amazing. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at marginaliapod.com.